And we are going to be in John chapter 18 yet once again. This is our third and final message, I think, on, this, on these two verses. John 18, verses 34 to 36. <clears throat> so I'm going to read that uh, again. And um, we've been talking about the kingdom. We focused in on where the kingdom is. Excuse me. Exactly what the kingdom is. And today we are going to talk about when the kingdom is. And so if you've been listening, you sort of know where this is going. But I do want to call out to you some really incredible, I see just amazing uh, verses of scripture and amazing passages um, from the Old Testament specifically um, that point to to the when of the kingdom. So before I do that, I would like to dismiss our children's, uh, our King's Kids. You guys can go back um, to the King's Kids place. And um, we don't have Spanish uh, translation today. Both of our translators are out. So I will speak slowly. And I may even use some Spanish words here and there. Hola. That's it. So let's look at John chapter 18, verses 34 to 36. After Pilate asks Jesus the accusation against him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and chief priest delivered you to me. What have you done? Then in verse 36, Jesus answers, my kingdom is not of this world. And again, we remember, it's not out of this world. It's not from this world is the correct translation there. If my kingdom were from or out of this world, out of meaning the source of the kingdom, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. And remember, he's sort of saying this with, the eye to Pilate's servants taking up arms. But as it is, Jesus says it again, my kingdom is not, and this part of this realm, is not from this place. And so that's where we've sort of been camping out for the past couple of weeks to find out what does this actually mean? What does this verse actually say? Is Jesus talking about that he's from some other realm in outer space and that's what really matters and we are really not so worried about this stuff going on here. Hey, we just want to get out of here and get out into that disembodied existence up there. That's not what he's saying. Oh no, it's exactly the opposite. Because Jesus told us many times, he said, look, my king, the kingdom of God is here. We see that throughout the Gospels. But we also see Jesus pray to the Father that his kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. So the source of the kingdom, Lord, we want that to be brought here. We don't necessarily want to go there, although we will during that intermediate period of time when we pass from this world waiting for our resurrected bodies waiting for Christ to come and return that temporary period of time, we will be in God's dwelling place, his presence, which is going to be a glorious time. 
But yet that's nothing compared to what God has in store for us, for this kingdom that he is using you and I and every one of his children to build for. And then it will, as we see in Revelation 21 and 22, it's going to come down and it's going to merge with the earth. Heaven and earth are going to be one and God's presence is going to reign. And we are going to be able to know him as we are known. Excuse me again. Because of this um, terrible thing that we experience on this earth during our life called sin, this terrible, I would say, anti-force, anti-creation force, sin. Sin tears down. Sin destroys does exactly opposite of what the kingdom of God is called to do. And because of this terrible consequence of sin in the world that we see all around us, it's difficult for us to actually imagine what it is that we are saying here in this scripture. It's hard for us to imagine a world without sin. As the analogy goes, as a fish doesn't comprehend life without water or even know that he is wet, Human beings have no idea of what life is like without the consequences of sin. We have no idea about it. We can imagine it without, we can imagine life without pain. We can imagine life without suffering. We can imagine life without devastation and evil, wickedness and death. But it's not here, at least not yet. And to make things worse, none of us know the day or the hour of our death. We have this pending doom that lays over us. Now, of course, I believe the Lord, he's chosen very wisely to keep our day of death a secret to prevent us from knowing when our temporary exit is going to be. But if you're a believer, you know that you're going to enter it, but you know it's going to be different. Jesus says that he that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And even though he dies, he's going to live. You're not going to embrace death the same way as a non-believer will. Humans have a tendency to want to know everything. We want to know what, we want to know where, we want to know how. But most important, we always want to know when. In my home with young children, we get in the car and it's always, well, how long is it going to take to get there? Before we even left, when are we leaving? And then... Once we get there, they want to know again. Well, when are we leaving? To get to the next place. They want to know when, 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 and it goes on. You see, although the Lord hasn't kept the day of our exit from this realm, or he has kept the day of our exit from this realm a mystery, he doesn't hold back in telling us where and what, like I said, we are entering into in death. We are going to enter into his presence instantly until the time he returns. He makes all things new. We have a fully rehabbed body, a fully renovated body living on a fully rehabbed, renovated planet Earth with the presence, God's rich presence for us to enjoy forever. Now, I don't know about you, but that makes me want to say from the backseat, Dad, when are we getting there? I want to be there. If I were to figuratively yell that up, I believe Jesus would answer, we are there. We are there. But you see, not fully, 
but we are there. It is very, very profound and important that we understand that. He said it well over a hundred times in the Gospels. The kingdom of God is here. It's among you. The time is now. You see, because all we like to do is process, you know, all the stuff being with God is stuff that's good. Happiness. No, but, but God says, yeah, well, see, the reign and realm has started now for that to come in. But you see, he's using people and working through people to bring that fullness of the kingdom about. It's the Holy Spirit that's working in and through us, coming head to head with this stuff called sin. New creation battling the decreation of sin. What wins? We've seen it all through the Gospels. Jesus heals, it gets reversed. So the past couple of weeks, as we know, the kingdom of God, we talked about where it was. <clears throat> we talked about, you know, what it actually is. And then today I am going to again talk about the kingdom of God and when. And although we may not quite see it, the scriptures scream out from the beginning to the end that, in fact, the kingdom of God is here. With Jesus launching the kingdom at his enthronement and beginning the new creation, Beginning now, okay, beginning, enthronement's there. The new creation beginning, where? In his resurrection. That's why he rose from the dead. And he's that, he is the firstborn of that new creation. He is the prototype. We are the microcosms of that. And so we are called out into the world to confront this sin and to defeat it. <clears throat> I, if you were to cross a border into a new country, a new country that was a land of milk and honey, it was, you heard the reputation, you heard the rumors. As soon as you cross that border into that new country, you now live according to that new country's laws. You now live according to that new country's culture. You live according to that new country's rule. And you anticipate, because of the peace that that new country brings and the joy that it brings, as you are told, it's going to get better, it's going to be more clear, it's going to come even more crisp. This is a very good parallel to what it is about the kingdom of God. Once we enter into the kingdom of God, we are now able to see, as Nicodemus was unable to. We see all the things you're doing, Jesus. He says, you can't see anything, Nicodemus unless you are born from above. You cannot enter the kingdom of God, the realm, this, this power that we're talking about. You cannot enter into it fully and see that unless you are born from above. And so we've crossed that border as believers into Jesus's rule and reign and territory. And when he returns, we will see the complete project done. We will experience all the fullness and all the benefits of this new realm. Now, how we see the kingdom may not dictate where we live, but it certainly dictates how we live. And it certainly dictates why we live now. And to the Lord Jesus, this means everything. See, my, my goal here as, as covering this scripture and, and, and asking the Lord to reveal it to us, my goal is that your life and my life 
will be fueled by the nowness of the kingdom of God. And that we will have the hope of the yet future kingdom of God. And those two things combined is the game plan on how we are to live and be instruments in God's hand. Being that unique individual that he created before time began, he knew you and he knew who you were going to be, what you were going to do and when you were going to do it. And it all is for his purposes, his kingdom. And where we get it wrong, but sin, it makes us look inward instead of upward and outward. So what I want to talk about is the when of the kingdom. When is it? Now and in the future. Now, why? First, we're going to talk about the now. Why is the kingdom of God now in this present time? Well, I believe there's three specific things that we can talk about. We can obviously talk forever about this. As you know, it's our third week. But the first one I want to talk about today is the number one reason why we know it's now is because the testimony of prophecy, the testimony of prophecy. Now, prophecy is um, a lot of different variations of prophecy. But when we talk about prophecy in relation to Christ and in in relation to the kingdom of God, we're talking about stuff that was said in the Old Testament, which pointed directly to when this rule and when this kingdom was going to be was going to show up. And as we said, the Jewish people, the people of Israel were waiting on tiptoes with bated breath for the reign of the Messiah to come. That's all that they cared about was for Israel to be what Israel was intended to be from the beginning. But because of their sin and their rebellion against God, they knew God would do again what he had done before in Egypt. He would deliver them. He knew that he had promised that he would send another king on the throne of David. But when is it going to happen? Will the scribes and the and the Pharisees and the, all the, 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 the rulers, they would calculate when this was going to happen based off of things that were said in the Old Testament. So the gospel writer, Mark, who we believe was helped and assisted by Peter, one of the very first things that he announces in relation to the good news is that the time that everybody has been waiting for The Jewish people, you're waiting for the king to come. The time has been fulfilled. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Believe this good news. Believe this announcement of peace. Again, this is how Caesar would send his people into different areas. He would tell people that, you know, Caesar uh, has now been elected emperor, whoever the new emperor was. And you know what? There's going to be peace. There's going to be prosperity. He is the son of God. That's exactly what they called him. And they would actually refer to that announcement as the gospel. So this is right in the face of the Romans that Jesus is saying the time is fulfilled the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Stop thinking your way of the kingdom, this militant way. You're going to have to turn from that 
This doesn't mean turn from your own, in this context, this doesn't mean turn from your own personal sins and have a religious experience and believe the gospel. Although that may happen. But to specifically to these Jewish people right now, they're being told to stop thinking about the kingdom of God the way they were thinking about it, taking it by force, and realize that the kingdom of God is going to be a little different than what you expect. And that is the good news. This kingdom is going to have God sitting on the throne, Jesus Christ, ruling and reigning, but in a much different way than they expect. Now, the king was expected to come at any moment. Now, why? What time is fulfilled? Where are these calculations? Well, again, we, when we read the Old Testament passage this morning in Leviticus, we, we, we heard the sevens a lot, right? Seven times seven, 49. But talking about Sabbaths and then talking about the Sabbath of Sabbath, which is called the Jubilee. And that's after every 49 years. I'm going to get back to that. And I have to say in advance, this is not going to be an easy message to understand. It's not. If you don't listen. If you listen and you truly pay attention, you'll get it. And then you can go back and do your research and you can see if these things are so. And the only reason I say that is because there's a lot of numbers. But here's what I want you to do. Don't want you to start calculating in your mind. Don't start doing math while you're hearing this because you're going to miss it. Do the math later. Write it down. Do the math later. But just remember the Sabbath of Sabbaths, 49, the Jubilee. Put that in the back of your mind. Now, why was the king expected? Well, the number one passage that they would go to of prophecy is in the book of Daniel. And in the book of Daniel, Daniel was, a, he was a, a very brilliant guy. He knew the word of God. He had the scrolls and he was reading the prophet Jeremiah. And the prophet Jeremiah had said that there was going to be 70 years until Israel comes out of captivity and is freed by the Babylonians. That's what Daniel, or that's what Daniel read in the book of Jeremiah. <clears throat> so, in the book of Daniel, as he's contemplating this in the beginning of chapter 9, God sends an angel to him to tell him the correct interpretation of that 70 years. And in Daniel 9, 24 to 25, he says, 70 sevens are decreed for your people. So it's not 70 years, it's 70 times 7. They are decreed for your people, listen, for the holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So this is the scripture that everybody used. They knew that when the Messiah would come, This is all the stuff that he was going to do. He was going to come back. He was going to get Israel out of of trouble, get them released from their sins so that they, they could be free and that their king could be then put back on the throne. And this is the, the calculation that they, that they made was 70 times seven, which is how many years? 490 years. Now, this is the Jubilee. 
Every 49th year of the Jubilee, the debts would be repaid. Any debt that you owed anyone would be wiped clean. It would be forgiven. And that's how people would calculate it. If they knew one year was left for the Jubilee, they would do the math and because they knew that you're going to be free in another year. So they may boost up whatever it is, the interest on whatever it is that they were charging you. So debts would be repaid. Every person would return to their own land to preserve the land and let it not let it get into the hands of other people through trade or bargaining or anything like that. Servants would be released. If you were a servant, a male or a maid servant, and you had a contract with your, uh, with your master or whoever you want to call it, whatever's politically correct to say, um, you would be released from that debt on the Jubilee. It was when everything got paid back. Now, we read in Leviticus <clears throat> these seven, these, the same exact thing. So you have the time of the seven Sabbaths of years, what? 49 years, and the 50th year is the proclaiming of the release. This is what's written on our Liberty Bell in Philadelphia. Proclaim a release throughout all the land and its inhabitants. It's a jubilee to you. Now, Jesus, when he first started his ministry in Luke, he was invited while he was in the synagogue to come on up and read. Does anybody remember him doing that? Well, Jesus chooses the scripture to read from Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 2. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but he says, and this is told in Luke, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives. And then verse 19, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And this is referring to the Jubilee period. Jesus says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your ears. So ultimately what Jesus is saying is that the 49, the the Jubilee period that that, that they are waiting for, that 490, that Jubilee of Jubilees has now entered in and it's being fulfilled in their ears. This is when the king is supposed to come and, and, and rule and reign. Now, that's number one. Number two, the, the gospels agree with this testimony as well. It's now. The nowness is also testified in the gospels. Now, we see in Luke and Matthew, does anybody know in the beginning of those gospels, a lot of times when we read Matthew, we jump in the first chapter of it. And that's why when we meet somebody, we don't give them the book of Matthew because we don't want to lose them in the first chapter. They're going to read all these genealogies. And then people go, well, what's all this genealogy stuff mean? Because why does Matthew write these genealogies? You see, both Matthew and Luke give a genealogy. Matthew gives the genealogy from the father, from Jesus's father, Joseph, his earthly father. I'm sorry, uh, it's, it's around. Luke does the father, Matthew does the mother from Mary. And they trace their lineage through the line of David. So that way we can know that the king who's supposed to descend from the seed of David is in fact Jesus. And he qualifies not just on his mom's side, but even on his earthly 
father's side as well. But Matthew, who was Matthew written to? It was written to the Jews. So this this genealogy, when you look at it from a Jewish perspective, when you look at it in the Hebrew, it's written as three groups of 14. I know you guys are going all, I don't care, I'm going to tell you this because this is so incredibly cool. Three groups of 14 is six sevens. How much is six sevens? Six times seven is 42. We are now missing one seven, which would make 49. Matthew is pointing to Jesus as that seventh seven. Well, you say, well, Pat, what does that mean? Well, why is that significant? Because when we read about seven, what do we think of? Sabbath, but we also think about the week. As we read from Daniel, a week can be a period of time, which most of the time it is referred to that. So he is pointing to us cryptically, but yet not if you were a first century Jewish person, you would see exactly what he's pointing to, that the king of David is yet among us, and also as it relates back to the prophecy of Daniel, which is the one that I read before, that was part one. The the prophecy of Daniel is that this awaited king and this timing is almost exactly perfect. We know that when Jesus had his triumphant entry into Jerusalem, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. And they put them down. They they threw down the, um, they laid their coats. And in in some scriptures, it says that they put down leafy branches. The timing of this is very, very interesting as well. Because in Daniel 9.25, it says, no one understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, comma, the ruler, comma, comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens, which is, don't do the math, it's 483 years. Now, this is very unique because Daniel wrote this in the first year of Darius, the year 538 B.C., About 95 years later, in the year 445 BC, don't calculate, the commandment was given by Artaxerxes to Nehemiah, you can read it in the book of Nehemiah and in the book of Ezra, to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Again, don't do the math. I love how Chuck Smith explains this, who is um, the founder of the Calvary Chapel movement. Just a disclaimer, I don't agree with his dispensational eschatology. But I do love him as a, as a Bible teacher. Um, and I also think that he was one of, the, uh, one of the greatest men of God during our time. So when he, when he, and he was very much into Bible prophecy. And he has since passed. But if he knew that I was using what he said here to refute his point, he would probably not like it so much. But I am going to give you some really interesting research that he did. According to records that were found by Sir Rawlinson, a British Army officer and archaeologist, in the palace of Shushan, (laughs) the Persian Empire that's mentioned in Esther, this order to rebuild the temple was given in March, on March 14th, 445 BC. Now, this is an important date in history because according to the promise here, 
and the prophecy here, from that time, the commandment goes forth to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, like you said, until the time of the Messiah will be what? 70, 70 sevens and 62 sevens, 483 years. And so from that year, March 14th, 445 BC, according to the prediction here, the Messiah would come in 483 years from the time of that commandment. Now, the years in the prophecies of Daniel are not like our calendar. They're not 365-day years. They're 360-day years. That was the Babylonian calendar. So if you transpose these 483 years into days... 173,880 days, and you take that and work it out on your calendar, you'll find it comes out to the date April 6th, 32 AD, the day that Jesus entered into Jerusalem on a donkey where the crowd laid down the palm branches saying, Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I know that was tough, but the beauty and the amazing Prophecy that's here attests to the beauty and the, mo- and the amazing aspect of what the word of God truly is and how much we can depend upon what it says. We can put our complete trust in the prophecy and sufficiency of scripture and the promises of the word of God. Now, thirdly, It's because of the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And I'm going to tie all this up, and it's it's going to be worth um, the bated uh, breath and anticipation that you have for the climax of this message. But it's okay, because you, this is the thing that you, these are the types of things that for me, when I read these things and see these things, it blows up in terms of my trust in the Lord. It blows up in, in, in the, just the actual, I don't even want to call it intelligence, but how this all works out increases my faith. I'm not sure if, that, if it does it with you, but I believe that's what the intention of the Lord is here as well. So the resurrection and ascension, the resurrection on the first day of the week. We see this in every single gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John both go out of their way to say on the first day of the week. On the first day of the week. They say it in the same exact way, indicating and pointing to, I believe, that it's not just the fact that we now worship on the sixth day of the week, or I'm sorry, on the seventh day of the week, which is why we do. We worship on Sunday because Sunday symbolizes the new creation, the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And then that new week is that new period of time that we are referring to here that Jesus brought in, that beginning of the new creation, that beginning of the launching of the kingdom of God. And then, of course, we have the ascension. He was carried up to heaven in a cloud. We see in Acts 1, 9 to 11, a cloud received him out of their sight. And then we go back to Daniel chapter 7, and it says, And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man comes up, he takes his seat next to the Ancient of Days, and to him is given what? Dominion, glory, and a kingdom. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is one which will never be destroyed. This happened at the Ascension. 
This, my friends, I believe is a convincing, if you, if you pile it up with the where is the kingdom and the what is the kingdom, it sort of infers, yes, the kingdom has launched now. But God has gone over and, and beyond to show us and tell us just from the testimony of Scripture alone that God has launched and done something very, very unique in the fact that Jesus had launched his kingdom. It is now because of the testimony of prophecy, the testimony of the Gospels, and of the resurrection and ascension. Now, what about the future? What about the future kingdom? I mean, this is what we mostly have all been taught. We've mostly of all come up through church knowing that, hey, there's going to come a time where Jesus is going to return. And a lot of times we, we have different theologies on that. We're not going to get into that. But there's going to come time where Jesus is going to return and everything's going to be great. Streets of gold and we're going to go to be in heaven and he's going to take us to heaven, which I hope now you see that heaven and earth are going to become one. We're going to live on a physical new heavens and new earth. But that period of time before that and now is sort of what we call it's life after death, it's with Christ, but then it's still not the end. There is the future. Now, first of all, the Jewish people never, if you look, no matter where you study, where you look, in uh, historical books, in the scriptures, the Jews never thought of the future as going to heaven when, they're, when they die. Their hope was in the new heavens and the new earth. Again, that's like saying, I'm going to like, it's like being married, but never talking about your marriage, always talking about your engagement. Like the engagement period is over. It's insignificant after you're married for a long period of time. And that's what it's going to be like when we go to heaven, when we die, and then the resurrection comes and we have the new heavens and the new earth. Those old former things are not going to be even thought of. Because heaven and earth and God's presence is going to be there. But you see, we're building towards that time. Doing God's kingdom work in, in, to, to, in the Hebrew or known in Judaism <clears throat> is a phrase called tikkun alam, which means to repair the world. That's what they thought of when they thought of God's kingdom work. Get out there and repair the world for Christ. Well, for God. And then those Jews that were converted, it, Jesus is king. Let's go, tell, let's go. And they had no care. Do you know why? Because they had the Holy Spirit and they were going to embrace trial, embrace pain, embrace persecution. And they were going to confront sin and the gates of hell would not be able to stand against it. And that's what their purpose was. It wasn't a disembodied existence. It wasn't a disembodied, timeless eternity that's we're going to go out to. You don't see that until Aristotle and Plato and all those, the, the, those philosophers. That's what they talk about, about heaven. The get me out of here. But God is exactly opposite. God is in our present reality and wants to work through us for the here and now. He doesn't just poof things. He uses people to poof things. He uses words that you could say, like we were talking in Sunday school. You could say one simple word, one, 
One simple interaction can change a person's life. That's how God works. He doesn't just make things happen by default. He's some distant God that's sort of like the Greek gods, you know, they send people down to cause these different things. No, that's not what we're talking about here. God is in our, he is in our hearts with the Holy Spirit for one reason and one reason only, to go out and spread that out through the proclamation of the gospel. The word of the gospel is what changes people's hearts. The Holy Spirit is what activates their hearts to want to go and love God and do and get out there and repair the world. Not for the sake of repairing the world. No, because this is Jesus's world. This is my father's world. This is Christ's world, his dominion. He's got the stake in the ground. You have the ability to go and proclaim the gospel. So when we see this new kingdom and this new creation and this futuristic vision of the kingdom coming here on, or from heaven to earth, it's God's plan all along. Go back to the Garden of Eden. That's what it was. It was a temple with the image of God in the middle of it, but it became corrupt from sin. And immediately God said, it's okay. Your head's gonna be crushed. And through the bruising of the heel of the Messiah, sins will be forgiven. Life will come to the world. But you see, that's through us. It's not, let's stand over here and let God, no, God wants to use you. He wants you to get up and talk to that person. He wants you to go to him and depend fully and trust on him. If this is making sense to you, that's what you should be thinking. You shouldn't have a burden and going, oh man, now everything I should do is like, you know, am I under the microscope? Now, no, that's not what I'm saying. It's a fully knowing Jesus Christ. That's point A. And that's point B, and point C, point D. It all works from there. God will work through you after he works in you. Isaiah 65, this is Isaiah, 900 and some years before Jesus came. You could really go from Isaiah, there's different sections of Isaiah. If you go from 45 all the way to the end, Isaiah 66, you'll see this is all about the kingdom. This is all about the new creation. This is all about Judah and, and is the true Israel reigning and ruling and populating the earth. <clears throat> I, his behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. And this is what he means. The former things will not be remembered or come to mind. This isn't in a negative sense. Like you're going to be like, hey, I don't know anybody anymore. Everything's gone. No, that, that's not what he means. This isn't a negative sense. This is um, uh, not like you're going to, I shouldn't say it's not in a negative sense because it sort of is in a negative sense. <laughs> Meaning you're going to remember your past. You're going to know people. You're going to have those interactions. You're going to be one with Christ and do all that stuff. But all those things from the past, they're not going to affect you at all. You are going to see the purposes in it. And I believe heaven is included in that too. That intermediate time where, where our bodies are in the ground, our spirit is with Christ, that's temporary. And I want that to be because the fullness is going to be when we see our master's work. He's, look what he's done. And we will have a part in that. 
Revelation 21 mirrors Isaiah 65, 17. It mirrors it. I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. There's no longer any sea. Again, this is apocalyptic, symbolic language. That's how this was written. This is, a pre- this is an apocalypse called the apocalypse, the revelation, okay, of John. She says, and then I saw the holy city. This is the future kingdom, guys. The new Jerusalem, again, figuratively coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. That's the church coming down. I heard a loud voice. Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. He will dwell among men. They shall be his people and God himself will be among them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no longer any death. There'll be no longer any mourning, no longer any crying, no longer any pain. The first things have passed away. See, these are first things, but notice they have to be that way. Unless the kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies. It has to, we have to enter through this threshold that we're in right now. But we are enabled to do that through the Holy Spirit. See, when Jesus comes back, and, and, and right now it says in 1 Corinthians 15, that he is abolishing all rule and authority and power. He is doing it now, actively, How? Through his people, through the Holy Spirit working in his people. He says, all authority has been given to me. Every bit of authority on heaven, I'm sorry, in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. He says that in Matthew, but then in Corinthians, he says that he still is abolishing all rule and authority. You see that? You see there's stuff, there's still a fight going on. Jesus we win. God, Jesus wins. He is the true king, the true ruler, but he's taking out those fake substitutes that are here. The counterfeit Jesuses, the counterfeit rulers that we bow down to, those idols that take over our life. And then we take that authority that Christ has given us and we give it over to our idols. We give it over to our sin and we give it to Satan temporarily. But that's a battle. Until he comes and does that, when he does that, he says he's going to come and hand over the kingdom to the Father. And they are one. See, there's a process going on, but this starts now. I can't overemphasize how important it is to your walk with the Lord to understand that. It's not taking away anything. Okay, maybe you fought the other way before. Maybe you're like, oh, my hope is just, you know, I want to skate on streets of gold and I want to get out of this world and this world's terrible. And hey, I agree with you. We are in the midst of a really decrepit situation in our world. And I don't just mean because of the politics or the wars and all that stuff. I'm saying because of the whole 100% totality of what sin has done to this world, we have no clue of what it's going to be like. The contrast is incomparable. It's like we look at white and we go, oh, that's white until you see it with a background of snow. Then you're like, that's not white, that's dark, that's white. See, we look now and we're like, oh yeah, the glory that we taste, the glory that we see when we worship, when we pray, when we're with the Lord, when we see somebody's life get changed, when we see somebody reconcile relationship, we go, oh, that's so amazing. It's a taste, a morsel, a taste of your taste buds of what this full kingdom is going to be like. So you have to put your hope in that. 
That's why we live with that hope. And if you have Christ in you, he will guide you and navigate you as it relates to your role in this. So this is a joyous thing. Isaac Newton says in the first law of motion, everything continues in a state of rest unless it's compelled to change by forces pressed upon it. Everything continues in a state of rest unless it's compelled to change by forces impressed upon it. See, that's God's law. That's God's uniformity of nature. That, 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 that law is everywhere. It's not just in certain sections of creation. You see, that's what the kingdom of God is. The gospel is that force. See, it's Satan was thinking everything's fine. If you're, out, if you're a Christian, you're not doing anything. And I don't mean workspace and all this stuff, but you're just trying to skate off and you're doing your devotions and, you're, and you're, you're doing that stuff. You're coming to church, you're doing all that, but your goal is just to get off to heaven. You're, Satan is fine with that. He's, okay, yeah, just go wait over here. Principalities and powers and rulers, there's levels There's generals, there's officers in Satan's army. And he comes up and he says, well, what about about faith evangelical church? Well, that's fine. They're good. Just let them keep worshiping. They're very church centric. They're very pastor centric. They're just doing their thing. And I don't believe this, but I'm giving you a little bit of idea here. I I, I don't believe that. But, But do we want to ever fall into that? And Satan says, or his generals say, well... They're just sort of inward focused. And yeah, they're praying. Okay, good. Leave them over there. But when he sees you go out, and I'm not just saying evangelizing, but that's important. But when he sees you go into your family and into your job and into your school and into your relationships, knowing that you are that force of the gospel that's going to go and confront the evil of the world and it's going to go and give love and do that, now you become dangerous. Now you've become dangerous. So it's got to be that paradigm shift. It's got to be that paradigm shift. Put all your trust in the word of God. I know this was difficult. I know I lost a few of you with the numbers. But don't take my word for it. If you want, go back, call me, email me. I'll send you the notes. You can look up this stuff. And I would love, I'd love to go more into, into depth with it. But it's, it's too luxury, right? It's too luxury right now. I want to encourage you. I want you to put your hope in Jesus working through you now for his kingdom. In illness, in death, in suffering, everything, in joy. <clears throat> Live in anticipation of the kingdom coming in its fullness, as if it's already here. That's what the Sermon on the Mount's about. You see, the Sermon on the Mount isn't here's how to be a moral person. The Sermon on the Mount is here's how kingdom people live. It's an upside down kingdom. It's you get smacked, you turn the other cheek. It's you bless those who persecute you. It's you pray for your enemies. Upside down. That's kingdom living there. That's what destroys sin. That's what propagates love out into the world. But if the kingdom's now, if the kingdom's not now, it's just me and me and my salvation, we're going to miss out on so much. Put your hope in the future resurrection. 
realize and meditate on that hope. I guess I'll stop there. I have one more scripture to read you. I just want to give you this. Paul in the book of Galatians is arguing his point about the Jewish people having to be, or about the Gentiles having to become Jewish to be Christians. It's a bit, that's what the book's about. It's about table fellowship because they weren't eating. They weren't the, you know, Peter was eating with the Gentiles when no one was around. But when the chief, when the, when the big time Jewish people came from Jerusalem, he wouldn't eat with them. Paul confronted them and he educated the Galatians on this. And at the end of chapter six, or I'm sorry, in chapter six, 14 to 15, it says, but may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not boasting in the law or boasting in my circumcision or boasting in all this. Through which the world, the system of the world has been crucified to me. I'm dead to it. I'm dead to it. I'm a soldier for Christ. And I to the world. And here's what he says. This is my point. For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. That's what this is about. Are you a new creature in Christ? Do you love Jesus Christ? Do you hate the sin that's plaguing you? Or do you like it? Or do you don't care what Jesus thinks about it? See, that's dangerous. Put to death, putting to death the deeds of the flesh. This is a daily death that we have to go through. Trusting in Jesus Christ as the vehicle to save us with his blood. You can't add anything to it. You can't add to the blood of Christ paid in full. Done. But now you can look and say, I'm a new creation made for the new creation. Christ is on the throne. I am his child. He can never leave me nor forsake me. God, what do you want me to do? That's what I encourage you to pray. And let's pray. Father, what do you want us to do? Thank you for the amazingness of your word, Lord. The amazing accuracy of, accuracy of it. Thank you for the, the penetrating power of it. The, how it cuts us, Lord, and yet heals us at the same time. Father, I pray for everyone in this room and everyone listening. That you would give them a, a, the confidence to rest in you. That you would give them, Father, up the, the, the perception of what it means to, to know that you rule and reign as king now. And that we will see you one day face to face when your work is complete. During that, in the meantime, Lord, please use us as you may. And as your will. <clears throat> Lord, we ask that you would just, um, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you. Or listening to this, Lord, that you would convict their hearts to call on the name of Christ, to turn from their sin, to believe on Jesus and his resurrection and his ascension and who he is and who you are for sending him. In his name we pray. Amen.